If you have a Bible, if you'd please take it and open with me to John chapter 5. This morning, you may want to use your bulletin because we're reading out of a, a different translation or different version of the English translation that we normally read at Trinity. We're going to read out of the NIV this morning because I think that the editors of the NIV actually help capture the flow of thought better in these particular words of Jesus. So if you're willing and able, let's stand together and we'll read from John chapter 5, beginning at verse 16, and we'll go to verse 23, and we'll read out of the NIV. And so you're welcome to follow along on the screen or in your bulletins. This is the very word of the Lord. Remember the context of the passage is that Jesus had just healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. And he goes and finds this man after he'd been healed. And he says to him, see, you're well. Go and sin no more. And the man immediately runs to the Jewish authorities and said, it was Jesus. Jesus is the one that healed me. And then we read this in verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And for this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so even the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Please. How do you handle conflict? I've noticed, and I'm sure you've noticed as well, that different personalities handle conflict differently. There are those people who just seem to love conflict. They're the aggressive type. They're, they're the kind that just seem to stir up conflict. If you will, they're the ones who you might say are the ones who bring it on. They're the ones who are always, it seems, ready at the drop of a hat for any kind of conflict. And then, as we think together about the different kinds of conflict, we might, we might find that there are, you know, four or five other kinds of people who handle conflict in different ways. There's the people who, like, deny anything ever happened kind of people. These are the people who can't handle conflict at all, so they just ignore the issue altogether and hope that it goes away. 
And then there are the kind of people who um, can't stand the tension. And so they reconcile at all costs. They can't stand any conflict. And so they run to reconcile and they just throw themselves at the offended person. And they die a thousand deaths to reconcile, to bring peace, sometimes even um, at great cost to themselves. Then there's the people who, oh, to use a psychological term, have like cognitive dissonance with conflict. Like, like they don't really know what to do with it. They just know they don't like it. And so they just kind of operate in this space where they just like don't ever address it. They don't really know how to address it. Then there's the people who are, who are really fun. They're the kind of people who um, handle conflict. Let's call them like the, um, the smile and kill people, right? <laughs> They're the kind of people who like smile at you and then they confront you to your face. They're the kind of people who um, you, just, you just so appreciate the fact that they can be so kind and then you leave the conversation like going, oh, oh. I think that I just got rebuked. The smile and tell, right? And then there are the people who aren't the smile and tell. They're the, they're the uh, kiss and tell. These are the people who things are totally cool together. Like when you're with them, it's like, oh man, it's like you're totally at peace. They're the kind of people who kiss you to your face, but then they run and they tell everybody about all the problems they have with you that they've never actually addressed with you in person, right? Listen, there's all kinds of different ways we handle conflict, Five, six, seven ways, perhaps. And I hope that you don't fall into any of these ways of handling conflict. But one thing we know about conflict is that conflict is inevitable. It is unavoidable. And I raise the question of how we handle conflict because this passage is all about conflict. And the conflict in this passage is between Jesus and the religious leaders. And beneath the story of the man who was healed is the story of the Jews' furious pursuit of righteousness unto the law, trying to please God by their righteous law-keeping. But beneath that story is a story of conflict. an important shift happens in John chapter 5. Mild reservations about Jesus give way to a furious hatred and scheming to take his life, beginning at this point in the book of John. By the end of chapter 6, his disciples, some of them run and abandon him. And by the end of chapter 7, he is charged with demon possession, and attempts are made to arrest him. And things just get worse from there, as you know. And what makes this so significant is that Jesus not only allows the conflict to happen, but it's as though Jesus is inviting it. It seems as though he is courting it. It seems as though he's going out of his way to stir it up, to manage it. He's going out of his way to endorse it. And he does so with the single longest address we have about his own identity in all of the Gospels. He does so in the presence of members of the most important Supreme Court in the land, the Sanhedrin. 
And Jesus essentially gives a formal defense of his deity and of his work before the Pharisees and the scribes. And what causes this conflict, you may remember if you're here last week, is a myth and a miracle. You remember the story, the myth was that in the northeast corner of the wall of the city of Jerusalem, there was a gate through which the sheep would come into the city. It was called the Sheep Gate. And not far from the Sheep Gate, where St. Anne's Church is today, if you've ever been to Jerusalem, not far from there was a pool about the size, two pools together, about the size of this basketball court. Double that size. And they were separated by colonnades, five-roofed colonnades that went around it. And at this pool, whenever the water was stirred, the myth, the silly myth went, whenever the water was stirred, the lame and the invalids and the blind would come and whoever was first into the pool would be healed. And at the pool, there was a man who'd been there for 38 years. And we, we don't know if that was his day job or if he lived there all the time. We don't know. What we do know is that Jesus asked him a very curious question. He asked him, do you want to be healed? Which for a man who'd been there 38 years was a pretty legitimate question, don't you think? I mean, after 38 years, you might wonder, does he actually want to be healed? Maybe this was the man who, quite frankly, became known as the man who is at the pool who could never be healed. Maybe this was the man who had become to enjoy the self-pity that he lived in as the one who could never make it to the water very fast. Maybe he kind of had in his own weird way formed an identity as the man who was always at the pool. He had become a known commodity. He was the man who can't get well. He may have taken pride in that identity. And Jesus comes to him and he helps him see that just as the wine at Cana could not cure hearts and just as the water in Jacob's well couldn't bring eternal life, so this silly myth couldn't heal this man. And we would all say that's a fine story if that was the end of the story. But it's not. In verse 14, it says Jesus goes and finds the man in the temple when there are probably thousands of people there. He finds the man. And so Jesus goes and tries to court the conflict. And he asks him, do you want to be healed? And after he's healed, he says, see, you're well. Go and sin no more. And the Jews respond with anger that Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath. And Jesus, my friends, leans into conflict, not out of aggression. He certainly doesn't deny it. He's not smiling and then killing you. He's not kissing and then telling. Jesus leans into conflict out of love. He brings the inevitable conflict to the man lame for 38 years. And he brings the inevitable conflict to the Jews. And he brings the inevitable conflict to you and me as we read the book of John today. He is bringing the inevitable conflict with himself against all of our false hopes. What is it that you and I will say makes life okay? What myth do you believe about your own life? 
What myth do you cling to that makes sense out of the hurts of your life? Whatever that hope is, the Bible has a word for those false hopes, and it calls it an idol. And whatever that myth is that's been gripping your life for 38 years or longer, Jesus wants to expose our silly myths and expose our idols. And he wants to say to us, don't sin anymore. Now, in Jesus' formal defense of his deity, he presents to us a number of eternal truths that we're going to look at in the coming weeks. There's at least six of them. Today, I just want to look at two. Jesus gives us two truths. One is the staggering revelation of his relationship to God as his father. And the second is that his submission to his father changed the world. First, the staggering revelation of Jesus' relationship to God as his father. Ready? Let's look at these together. Look with me in verse 17 and 18. It says, And Jesus said to them, My father, stop. For the Jewish people of God, their time was separated into basically two time periods. There was the present age and there was the age to come. And in the age to come, together with Adam's rebellion, all of creation had been stained by sin, according to the Jews. And it would inevitably, in this age, begin to get worse and worse and worse among God's own people, even among those through whom God had called to be the means by which he would renew the world, the Jews. They were to be the solution to that evil as they lived as his perfect theocracy before the nations. And in the age to come, God would intervene and he would cleanse and he would renew his creation. And this period of renewal would come at the dawn of a new age. The, the setting sun would fall and then the rising dawn would come. And it would come at the hands of a Messiah or multiple Messiahs, according to Jewish theology. And they would be the ones who would restore the theocracy of Israel to the world. They would, they would sweep away all the Caesars of Rome and they would be the ones that would restore life as God intended it to be restored. And all the Jews had great hope in this great renewal project. And all the nations would be blessed through Israel as they began to submit their life to the one true king. And they would be grafted in. And the Messiah would lead, or the Messiahs would lead, this new kingship of Yahweh, of the Lord, to be Heaven on earth, as it were, with Israel at the head. And this redemption would spread to all the world. And groups formed in the ancient Near East in order to help prepare the way. And so these groups would be people like the Pharisees, whom many of you know. They were the ones who kept strict adherence to the law. There were those who didn't have the patience for that. They would be the zealots, like Simon and Luke uh, 615, where Simon's called the zealot, one of Jesus' own disciples. They were the revolutionaries who picked up the sword and whatever they could do revolutionarily by war, they would accomplish the redemption of Israel. There were the Essenes who wanted nothing to do with fighting and so they, they withdrew from the scene. That's why they're called the Essenes. They withdrew from the scene and they were the ones who waited for the coming of the Lord 
as separatists. And there were other groups. There were the, the uh, Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see, right? There are all these different groups that tried to prepare for the coming of the Lord. That was a Mother's Day joke. You're welcome. Thank you. But into this dynamic, Jesus announces the arrival of the kingdom in himself. And so when he says in verse 17, my father is always at his work, it would have been a shock to the Jews to hear such blasphemy. My father, who does he think he is? To which Jesus responds, the son of God. I am the Messiah that you have been waiting for, Israel. I am bringing in this present age and the age to come, and I'm fulfilling and bringing in the kingdom in me. In our modern uh, Western democracies in today's time, it's hard for us to understand the notion of what kingdom really means for us. In Isaiah 61, there's a passage that Jesus reads when he's at the synagogue. And it says that the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the turning of this present age to the age to come. And Jesus closes the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue and says, do you remember? You do remember. He says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And the Jews who are waiting for the coming Messiah or Messiahs are hearing this carpenter's son blaspheme and they're enraged with him. And Jesus, of course, who knows their hearts seems to just invite it. Why? Because he knows that if you are ever to get over the 38-year myth that you've believed, you have to be able to come to grips with the fact that Jesus is indeed the true Messiah. That his Father is not only his Father, but his Father is also your Father. And Jesus welcomes and brings in a totally new age for the true Israel, the church, where he says, do you want to know God? then you have to first know him as a father. He's yours, just like he's mine. Jesus sent a cannonball through the wall of the Pharisees' law-keeping when he said, my father is working, and I too am working on the Sabbath, because I'm the Sabbath. Jesus not only shows us that he calls Yahweh his father, but secondly, lest we think Jesus is arrogant as the Jews obviously thought Jesus was being and blasphemous. We, of course, know that he's not being that because look what he says in verse 19. Not only does he have a relationship with God as his father, but secondly, he submits to his father. Jesus' submission to his Father is the second thing he shares in this beautiful, self-descriptive passage, the longest in the Gospels about himself. Not only am I a son of the Father, but I also submit to my Father. Look at verse 19. 
It says, my father is always at work and I too am working. Then down at verse 19, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. <laughs> How about that for a Messiah? I can't do anything by myself. You see glimpses of the Trinity coming into being here, don't you? He can only do what he sees his father doing. This is, this, this is the, uh, the, the method of, of earning a, an education when you're young. This is the apprentice method. Young sons would follow their fathers as a carpenter and they would learn the trade from watching their dads. Jesus here is just saying, just as I learned carpentry from my earthly father Joseph, so also I learned my role as Savior of the world through my heavenly father. I can do nothing except what my father himself is doing. I submit to him. The language of submission is a hard language for us today, isn't it, friends? What do we think of when we think of the word submission? Biblically, what does that mean? The word submission scripturally means at least four things. I'm just going to give them to you. We're going to spend the rest of our time on them. I, it means at least four things. Number one, it means you wrestle. <laughs> it means you're wrestling. Two, it means a decision to trust him. You're wrestling over it. You have to make a decision to trust him. Three, it's struggling to gain a high vantage point. It's struggling for a new perspective. Struggling with the idea of submission, making a decision to trust him, struggling in order to gain a vantage point. And fourthly, submission means joy. Now let's look at all four of these together. Submission means a willingness to will it, to submit your will. People say that submission is scary, that it's pathological, that it's not healthy these days. There was a man who, um, who got married, uh, and six months after he married, he, uh, his wife, his young wife, tragically died in a car accident. And people in his Christian community told him that was the Lord's will. Embrace it. Be happy. And this man, trying to be faithful to his, the teaching of this church, tried to follow that advice. And so he lost his bride and he pushed it down and was just, he pretended to be happy. People would ask him, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Jesus loves me. I'm doing awesome. And he kept this up for about a year and then he crashed and burned. Now, People said to him, well, it must be God's will, so don't be sad. And he tried that as long as he could. But when he crashed and burned, he never went back to the faith. And both of those ways of reacting to tragedy are not being submissive, either pretending that it's not there or denying it or pretending that you're not sad and rejecting it altogether. Both of those are negative ways to submit to the Lord. Was it long after that guy walked away from the faith that he just would just spew blasphemes at God because God had ripped him off and would have nothing to do with him? Think about that man in contrast to our Lord. When Jesus was in the garden, did Jesus say, praise the Lord, look what I get to do tomorrow? No. He didn't say there's no need to be sad about this. What did the perfect man of God say to his disciples? He said, I'm sorrowful to the point of death. I'm crumbling before you. I'm, guys, I'm falling apart. He said in the garden. 
but I'm doing this for you. Take this cup from me, Father, but not my will, your will be done. Do you hear Jesus wrestling? Like submission is wrestling. Secondly, submission is a decision. Submission is not Doris Day singing K, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. It is not resignation. If any will to do the Father's will, they must decide to do it. They have to will it. There's a part of volition about submission. And for some of us, this is where we get hung up. You ha- there's a will to find God's will, and you have to will it. There is God's planned will, and there is his command will, right? His uh, command will means that you have to do what we must do that's commanded for us. Even if it means professional suicide, you do what God has called us to do. That is a willing submission to him. It may not make sense to you. Father, this does not make sense to me. I don't understand it, but I trust your word and I'm going to obey it. This looks like it's going to ruin me, but not my will, but your will be done. And I know that I'm going to be okay. It's impossibly hard, but I trust you. No one can do it for you, friends. Submission means you must will, you must decide to do it. You must decide to trust him. Not only do you have to wrestle over, but you have to decide to trust him. And thirdly, submission means to see God or see things from the right vantage point. Um, If any of you have young children, you can imagine there's a thousand illustrations we can use for our children in this way. But imagine you have a young child and, and he has a toy truck and the toy truck breaks. It breaks and you can't fix it. What does that little boy do? He cries and he screams because of his toy truck. I can't fix my toy truck. And his day, his life just seems ruined. And what if that very same day, there's a letter in the mailbox addressed to that little boy that says, congratulations, you haven't inherited $50 billion. Now what does that little boy say? Oh, that's better. No, that little boy still cries and screams because he has no idea how to have perspective on the letter that he's just received. Dear friends, your 38-year idolatry is not the problem. Your problem is much deeper. Your problem is the eyesight of your heart. If I could just say it directly, you're the problem. I'm the problem. If we give, to God, give ourselves to God and we say, God, you can have all of us. You can have all that I am except this part of my identity. You haven't given yourself to him yet. And you haven't given yourself to him because it's your vantage point. Look, Jesus, Jesus looked the most staggering, mind-blowing pain in the face and said, I'm going to suffer this agony for several hours. I'm going to willingly do this. And I will do it because I'm going to redeem you from this suffering. 
I'm going to do it so that you would never have to suffer. And I know, I know what I'm going to do. But I'm doing it because I want you to know my father as I know my father. Now that's a vantage point, isn't it? George Matheson was a hymn writer um, who uh, has written several songs that we often sing together. And when he was 20 years old, he was engaged to be married. And he suddenly went blind. And his fiancée, when she heard and got news of the uh, terrible news that he had been born blind, she couldn't handle it, and she left him. She walked out on him. And George Matheson wrote this beautiful hymn with a line that says, I lay in dust, life's glory dead, and from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. My hope dies. My love of my life has abandoned me. But on the far side of the resurrection lies hope that can never be taken from me and there will be one who will never. Listen, I will obey you if I can hear why. You'll never obey him. You won't do it. That wouldn't be submitting. Because to know why is to remain in control of your little world. You've played these games, haven't you? I've played these games. There's a place in Hebrews where it says that during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and heartfelt, uh, earnest petitions to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because it says in the text, because of his reverence, or in Greek, his reverent submission. He cried out, Lord, take this cup from me. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. And we think, well, wait, wait, wait. Wasn't Jesus turned down? No, Jesus said, Lord, I want to do your will. I want what's best. I will to do your will. And we all know what the Bible says about prayer. That God will always give you what you would have asked for if you knew everything God knows. God always answers your prayers. He always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything. Everything God knows. And when you hear that, you say, yeah, that feels right. And what's happening is you're coming with me to a more correct vantage point. Until you get there, you're not going to experience the incredible joy that the Lord offers you. He gives you freedom. And it will always be in conflict. Inevitable conflict. Because you're fighting against your joy because just like this man by the pool, you too have a 38-year-old myth that you've been believing. And I don't know all of your stories, although I know many of them. But what is that myth that you cling to that says life is going to be okay if I can have this? Maybe that's actually what's keeping you from experiencing the freedom and the joy and the delight that the Lord wants to give you. And he's saying to you this morning, do you want to be well? I lay in dust, life's glory dead, and from there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Look, the people who saw Jesus at the cross, what did they do? When, when they say the, their hopes were completely dashed, and they ran, they left the scene of the cross, shocked, humbled, confused, hopeless. And they had no idea that the horrific event 
of the cross was actually God's wisdom to bring about the salvation of the world. And today we look at the cross and we don't have that problem because we have a book that tells us how the story ends. But the problem in my life and the problem in your life is that we don't have a book to tell us how the story ends on the things you're concerned about right now. And so we have to submit and trust him and cling to the gospel even when it seems like our hopes have been dashed. Isak Denison says that you shouldn't be surprised at this. People who are, um, she says it like this. She says people who are very, very wealthy and who are very, very poor know that life is tuned in a minor key. It's the bourgeois and the middle class who don't get that and who get angry when things don't go their way and they kick against the goads. They get mad when the world gives them anything but an orderly and comfortable life. And the, the Christian is someone who has gotten rid of this bourgeois mentality and says, if my master suffered, I too will suffer. If he submitted, I must, I will to will it. Now lastly, submission is joy. Remember, there are just two things I'm talking about this morning on what Jesus reveals about himself. God is a father to him. Secondly, that he submits to his father. And of that submission, you wrestle with your submission. You have to make a decision to trust him. You have to have the right vantage point to be able to submit. And lastly, you have to see the joy in the submission. Hebrews 12 says, let us fix our eyes upon Jesus. Let us get the right vantage point. The author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross. If, if suppose God came to you and said, I'm gonna let you write the agenda for the rest of your life, right? We would all jump at that. The Problem would be, would the Sunday self write that agenda or the Tuesday self write that agenda? Would the 20-year-old self write that agenda or the 40-year-old self or the 60-year-old self? Or heaven forbid, the 15-year-old self? Because when I was 15, I was a fool. And even if you could write your own agenda, which self would you have, have the power of the pen? Gaining perspective is what, is being, what it's all about as a Christian. What's it make you think you're not a fool right now? God always answers your prayers in the ways you would have prayed if you would have known all that God knows. And Jesus, listen, he has to confront your 38-year idolatry to get you out of there because we're foolish today. And he has to confront you and he has to call you to say, quit being a sovereign self and submit yourself to me. Do you want to get well? You have the opportunity to live for yourself or you have the opportunity to honor me. Those are the two choices. What will it be? He must pierce your heart to save you from yourself or you will harden your heart and you will pierce him. Those are the only two options we have before us, friends. There's an old rabbinical saying that says God can, he's the only one that can send rain, that can make the wind blow, or that can raise the dead to life. And here Jesus stands before the rabbis of the world as the great rabbi who begins 
just begins to hint at his resurrection by healing this man who's believed a silly myth for 38 years. And he points to the resurrection. Jesus isn't just a mere Messiah. He's not just a mere man. He is divine. And he is a father that he wants to redeem you and introduce you to, to know him as a father, intimately, personally. But to know him, you must submit. You must wrestle. You must make the decision. You must have a high vantage point. And lastly, you must choose joy. And if not today, the inevitable conflict of your soul will continue. Do you want to be healed? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us to lay in dust life's glory dead. And find that from the ground there blossoms red, life that shall endless be. Give us wisdom and perspective to see the 38-year myths that we have believed. And would you help us to see the beauty of our Savior who comes to us to pronounce that we too can share his Father and call him our Father. And we too, like Jesus, must also submit. Help us to wrestle Help us to make the decision to will it. Help us to have the right vantage point and complement that vantage point with the joy of the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Christ, that you confront us, that you bring to our hearts the inevitable conflict of the good news of the gospel. Amen.